good morning, Foursquare. How's everyone doing? Anyone had a good week in Nashville? Yes, I certainly did. My wife Anna and I, we got to go downtown yesterday. Did y'all see those adult scooters that you can take around? Yes, uh, we had a blast on that. Probably a little too much fun, if you can tell from the redness of my nose and my forehead. Uh, see, I'm, I'm Irish, which means we have this condition where our skin really doesn't get along with the sun all that well. Um, there are some strongholds I guess the Holy Spirit can't break. I don't know. Um, but I'm honored to be here. Uh, it has been an incredible connection experience. Uh, the speakers, have they not been phenomenal? Can we give it up? Oh, my gosh. There are very few things more humbling and... Um, anxiety-inducing than being the caboose on this train, but I'm honored to be here, and if you would go with me, I believe I have another word from the Lord before we are commissioned, sent back out to our context to love God, love our people, and love our neighborhoods. Does that sound good, Foursquare? All right. My dad tells the story of a time God answered a prayer of his, a pretty long-standing prayer of his, revolving his second son, which in the interest of just full transparency, I'm going to let you know, is me. I'm the second son, okay? I was born with a rare craniofacial disorder called Golden Heart Syndrome. Uh, and my dad says there's, there's a particular horror, the taste of which you never quite lose, when the joy of giving birth to a child is immediately replaced by abject terror as you see the faces of the doctors and nurses registered that there is something very wrong as they pulled me from mom. There were no early detection devices when I was born. They had no idea anything was wrong with me until I came into the world. And so they immediately whisked me away and the nurses would return every few minutes with something new that they had discovered that was wrong in my body. I'm sorry, Mr. Joyce, his, his left ear isn't there. I'm sorry, Mr. Joyce, his left jaw, it didn't fully form. He has scoliosis in his back. His right lung doesn't work properly. He has two holes in his heart. By the fifth or sixth trip, Dad says, the nurses just came into the room with tears, with more bad news to deliver. It was a sobering day, to say the least. And so my dad and mom, they, they did what parents do. They, they began to pray. And I think parents understand childlike praying. I really think they do. When your heart would give absolutely everything for this child who you love so dearly, it's just a lot of grunts and groans and words that don't seem coherent. And so he prayed a version of the same prayer for 11 years. God, would you heal my son? We just heard that prayer. God, would you heal my son? Until one day he said, God answered back. He was, he was crying out this prayer, Lord, make my son whole. Lord, heal my son. You can do it. God, would you make my son whole? To which he said something erupted within him, a voice that screamed right back, but can you not see it, Tim? I already have. Can you not see it? It's already done and to take nothing away from the testimony we just heard because God does heal. That also didn't look that way in my story. So the question we were left with was, what does God mean by saying 
that I'm whole when quite clearly it appears I'm not? What is wholeness for God? This is the question I've been forced to pursue because I wear the question on my body. I've seen the question asked in thousands of eyes as I catch them staring at me. And this is becoming a little bit of a game for me because I've preached a version of this message in different contexts because as I've pursued an answer to this, I realize it's everywhere in Scripture. It's the gospel itself. And so I I want to know what the theme verse is for, for the context I'm speaking to and use that without forcing it or manufacturing it, use that as the jumping off point for the answer. And so, of course, in in our case, restored by Jesus, we're looking at that beautiful passage of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and this is what we read. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, we are healed. How do the wounds of Jesus heal? That's my question. Because the answer to that might get at what God was saying to my father. How do the wounds of Jesus heal? Well, the first thing I think wounds do is they cause uncomfortable truthfulness. They cause uncomfortable truthfulness. As I said, I was stared at a lot growing up. Uh, and, And I know it might look like my face is relatively normal. It wasn't like that. I've had a lot of surgeries, a lot of bones being broken. It was like a game of Tetris, all right? A lot of reconfiguring. So I I garnered a lot of stares, and I realize now, uh, I know the look very well. It's a look that mixes both curiosity, because I've never seen a face like this, and disgust. They're repulsed by what they're seeing. And I know it's not personal, It's rather at the conceptual implications of what my face represents. See, people didn't want to admit that a face could look like this, could be this broken. It kind of, it shatters the illusions that people want to believe that the world's really not that bad. It's not that broken, and by extension, that they're not that broken. See, here's the thing. Deformed faces remind people of their deformed lives. Wounded faces remind you of your own wounded story, your own past traumas and abuses, your failed relationships, your failed parenting, your failed careers, those things that people don't want to remember. They'd rather suppress and push down and hold up other things like, look at my successes and look at my education and look at my fame. They'd rather convince themselves and others, oh, it's not that bad, I'm actually okay. The issue with visibly wounded people is that they remind us that something's not right with the world, and we'd all just rather not think about these things. Have you ever wondered why God chose to become a human? And not just any human, right? But a human whose story culminates with him hanging on a cross bleeding out, gasping for air, suffocating and waiting to die. Disgusting, heinous, God chose that. Well, could it not be, friends, that this image of Jesus on the cross is in fact the personification for every human soul? 
Could it not be that this is the human condition that you and I are all bleeding out on crosses, waiting to die, suffocating from the wounds of a wounded world that is separated from God and therefore uh, inflicted by subsequent wounds of how we hurt one another through our fear and our self-preservation? You may be able to hide your soul's wounds, but they're still very much there. You and I both know they are. If Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, my face is the visible image of invisible sin. Jesus on the cross is the visible image of the invisible effects of a world that is separated from God. Wounds make us uncomfortably truthful about the true reality of all of our souls, the true reality of this world. You can pretend like everything's fine, but I know what's underneath that mask. I know how fragile it is. I know how ugly it is. That's okay. I'm right there with you. I mean, maybe you're thinking, all right, great. We're truthful. We're, we're, we're acknowledging the brokenness. What now? We're bleeding out. We're suffocating. We're going to die. We're staring at God bleeding on a cross. Where's the hope? What's the good news? Well, I'm going to take us back a couple years. I'm going to go a little PG-13 on us, all right? One night, my wife, Anna, and I, uh, we were making out, okay? Oh, yeah. We were making out. And in the middle of it, she pulled back quite suddenly, and she said, stop that. Put those words high on the list of things you don't want to hear from the person you're kissing. (laughs) Stop that. Uh, Though there would be precedent for this as she tells it, and you can ask her, she tells it quite openly. Our first kiss was the worst first kiss she had ever had. Okay? In my defense, though, in my defense, it was like a car kiss, so the seatbelt was getting in the way, and, and, and I have no feeling in my lower lip, seriously, due to all the surgeries. You can pinch this sucker as hard as you want. I won't feel a thing. So now don't you feel bad about yourself. Yeah, that's what I wanted. Yeah, that's right. So we go in for that first kiss and we're jockeying for position and she gets my lower lip, which means I can't feel a thing. So I'm just like floundering like a fish on the dock or something. And what did I do? I bit her quite naturally. I pulled back and she's like, I can taste blood in my mouth. And I go, I just bit you. Did that stop this guy? Nope. I said, I'm gonna try that again. I went in for kiss two. You know what I did? I bit her again. That's right. One first kiss, two bites. I got a ring out of it though. Come on now, come on now. I don't know if she's gotten worse or I've gotten better. All I know is that's none of your business, all right? We're here. Anyway. Years back, we're kissing, we're making out. She pulls back, she says, stop that. I had no idea what she was referring to. She goes, do you know you always do that? Every time I try and kiss the left side of your face, and to be clear, the left side of my face is the location of all the brokenness. You don't let me. I had no idea. And then she goes, do you not think I see you? Like all of you? Do you not think I love all of you? 
let me kiss you. I was stunned. I had no idea that's what I was doing. And it took me a bit of time to develop the language to process what was going on, but here's what I now know. I subconsciously believed that Anna loved the lovable parts of me, that she loved my virtue and character, blah, 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 and therefore was actively choosing to overlook the ugly parts of me, which namely was my face. I believed that only the right side of my face was worthy of kisses. And therefore, when she tried to, to direct her love to what I perceived to be ugly, subconsciously I said, no, 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 my dear, I'm sorry. It's too far gone, it's damned. It's unfortunate, but this is the good side. This is the side worthy of love. And in that moment, her question forced me into a place of uncomfortable truthfulness. I was made aware of all the ways that I had been hiding from her. And as that reality dawned in me, it began to dawn in her too. And so she said, Russell, I want you to sit back. And then she took her hand and she began to compassionately trace my wounds. And friends, I kid you not, no sooner had she touched me, rage erupted within me. I wanted to scream at her, do not pity me. I know what I look like, I don't need your pity. Rage erupted, but she didn't stop. She traced the misplaced bones of my left ear that had undergone three major surgeries. She traced my left jaw, which is actually a rib, and the implant that had been put in, about three or four major surgeries, not, not including the, the fat injections that I've also had. She touched the scar that goes from my, the left corner of my mouth all the way up to my ear, where my mouth was too wide as a baby. She traced with compassion these wounds. And then she leaned forward and she began to kiss my wounded face. And she would hold the pose, she would stretch her lips over as much flesh as possible, and she would hold the pose for an awful amount of time, for as long as it took, until the reality of what she was doing could lodge itself deep in my soul. And the reality was this, no one was forcing her to kiss my ugly face. Pity wasn't forcing her, God wasn't forcing her, she wasn't forcing herself. She wanted to kiss my wounds. Why? Because she loved me. And there was no me without these marks and the stories they told in my life. And as she kissed my wounds, the rage in me began to give way and something else replaced it. It's a motion that, that I don't really have a name for because I've encountered it maybe twice in my life. The closest thing I can call it is, it was a deep, deep grief. And I began to sob as she kissed me. I wailed. I'm talking about the tears that are so hard that they don't even fall. When you're, the, the convulsions that are so deep that I couldn't even breathe because so much pent up pain Repressed pain was being released in this singular moment. And in that moment, friends, 
probably for one of the, the first times I encountered the gospel. Because I knew, I knew it, that I was truly seen for who I was, and I was freely chosen. I was truly seen, and I was freely chosen. See, here's the thing, friends. God has always been telling the world, do you not think I see you? Like all of you? Do you not think I love all of you? Let me kiss you. But we haven't, because somewhere deep in our subconscious, we have avoided the true reality of our souls. We have lied to ourselves and to others. We've repressed our wounds that are bleeding out and tried to convince others and ourselves, no, no, look at the right side of my face. Look at my successes, look at my fame, look at my perfect family, my perfect marriage. We've lied, we believe that love only comes to lovable things. Kiss the right side, not the left side. So in order for God to communicate, no, 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 no. You don't understand at all what I mean when I say I love you. He has to channel his love through the left side of our face. Anna had to channel her love, her kisses, through the parts of me I believe to be most ugly and unlovable. When she kissed my wound, she sang, hey, Russell, there is no amount of brokenness too ugly for my lips. When God becomes not just human, but crucified, wounded, grotesque human, dead human, God is saying, hey, listen, O world, there is no wound too ugly for my love. There is no wound in your life too ugly for the lips of Christ. Not even sin and death can keep the love of God away. At the cross, God kisses the sinful human and God kisses the dead human. His love unites with us there. And guess what? We're healed. Because here's the thing, friends. A wound is a wound because it's still infected which is why when Anna began to touch the left side of my face, rage erupted within me. Because it was infected. It had never been joined in that place before. I was furious. But as she continued to kiss me, as she continued to join me there, don't miss this, as she was with me. What's Emmanuel's name? God with us. As she was with me, the wound was emptied of its infection. The rage gave way. The power was emptied and I was set free. When God joins the world in its sin and death, he empties the wound of its infection. Which is why Paul sings, where, O oh, sin, is your victory? Where, oh, death is your sting, it doesn't hurt anymore because God's love has entered these modes of existence, kissed them, and healed them. We are set free. But friends, I got one more step. I'm not done yet. Because when a wound is healed, when the infection is cured, it doesn't stay a wound, right? But it also can't go back to a pre-wound state. No, the wound was real. The trauma was real, it has to go forward. So what replaces a healed wound? A scar. Which is why we read on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came, stood among them, said peace. And after he said this, he did what? He showed them his hands and his side. 
He showed them his scars. Friends, here I was thinking that scars were the most unworthy thing of kiss, for kisses. And little did I know, according to the gospel, on that last day, it will only be scars that are worthy of kisses. That will be the single kissable sign. For scars are the signs that God has entered the wound, healed it, and it has no more power over us anymore. The proof that the love of God is true, that our testimony about Jesus is true, is found exclusively in scars. Which means in the kingdom, beauty is inverted. In the world, we cover up our wounds. We, we point to the right side of our face. We point to our successes, our riches. I've named it, you know exactly what it is. We point to how big our church is, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But all the while, we're hiding our true selves. The infection remains. But the whole message of the gospel is God saying, I see you. You were truly seen and freely chosen. So scars are now the beautiful sign to a world that doesn't know this yet or trust it yet. Scars are our proof that the testimony is true, which is why Paul tells us we don't just need to, to, to have our scars. We need to boast in them. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What the world needs from the church more than anything else right now is not a people who look like them, but a people who hold up the scars of what were previously embarrassing wounds and saying, I'm not embarrassed about this anymore. I'm not embarrassed. The world may be embarrassed about this, but I'm not. It has no more power over me. Why? Because God has entered into it. He's looked at it and he said, oh yeah, I want to kiss this. I want to love this. It has been healed. See, friends, we forget that Jews will always seek signs. Greeks will always ask for wisdom. Americans always like what is bigger and better and victorious and triumphant. But we, we will always preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block for Jews, foolishness for Greeks, but for us, those being saved, it is the power of God. The power is there and nowhere else. And if you aren't experiencing power, it's because you're not looking at your scars. You're looking in all the wrong places, and God's like, I'm not there. I'm in the weakness. I'm in the brokenness. And not just in our own lives, but the most scarred of society too. Those whom our society has overlooked and discounted as wounded beyond saving. The poor, the failures, the degenerates, the disabled, the addicted, the old. Those who cannot functionally contribute to the industrialized pursuit of our own self-glorification. These beautiful people must be made central to our church again for the sake of our witness. Which is why I am so grateful for Jean Vanier who recently passed. And if you don't know him, look him up. He started communities called La Arche where the able-bodied and the disabled would live side by side as friends. And he talks about 1 Corinthians 12, where, where Paul likens the, body of, or the church to the body of Christ. And he looks at that mysterious passage that says, those parts of the body that are the least presentable are most indispensable to the body. What's he saying? He's saying those who are the least presentable to society because they're so scarred, they're so wounded, they're actually indispensable to the church. And the stories in your life that are the least presentable to society 
because it's so grotesque. It's actually indispensable to your witness. That's where God is. Why? Because our default tendency will always be to separate ourselves from God. That's what sin is. And we do that through holding up the standards of our own strength. But truthfully, the world has a wounded face. And truthfully, that's okay because we are truly seen and freely chosen. And we know this because God bled and died and now he has scars. We see his scars. Therefore, knowing all this, God says, in order to protect the heart of my church from going astray, I'm going to take the most broken and make them central to my body. I'm going to take the most scarred and make them central to our identity. Only when we boast in our scars will the world feel safe to show their true faces. And until then, we have nothing they want. And this is a practice that Anna and I still embody because guess what, I'm still human and I, and I, I wanna boast in, in the right side of my face. I wanna boast in strength and successes and all that. And when that happens and when I get anxious, Anna will sit me down and she'll begin to kiss the left side of my face. And every time, I'll feel irritation rise up in me again. And then it'll give way and I'll rest in what she's doing because what she's doing is she's communicating grace. I deserve nothing and I get everything. That's grace. When you allow God to enter your wounds, like the fullness of your wounds, like the truthfulness of your wounds, when you allow God to enter them and kiss them, you recognize the power of the gospel. You deserve nothing, and you get everything, which is precisely what we do when we come to the Lord's table, which is what we're going to do in, in a couple minutes. As Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim what? Not the Lord's resurrection. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every time we gather in these spaces, we gather as the church, Every time we come to his table, we eat and drink and remember God's death. We remember that God is now and forevermore, not the perfect God, not the whole God. No, no, he's the scarred God. He's the scarred God. He became like us, the real us, that we might become like him. When we take the Lord's Supper, it is like Anna making me sit down and allowing her to direct her love through the most unlovable parts of me all over again. When we come to the table, it's like my father, because we're tempted to cry out, Lord, heal us. Lord, make us whole. Lord, make us whole, to which Jesus holds up his split open body and has poured out blood and says, but can you not see it? I already have. Would you pray with me? Father, I love your church. I love your church. I love your gospel. I love the Bible. But I confess that it's so easy for us to make you in our image. We want you to look like us. We want to look like the rest of the world. We, want, we don't want to feel pain. We don't want to suffer. We want to go to, to better and better places. We don't want to boast in our scars because it's so humiliating. Well, that's what grace is, you say. 
And, and your word is that you don't have to be humiliated, though, church, because look at me, I was humiliated first. I, you, Father, you have entered into sin and death. You, who are the highest, became the lowest to free us from the deception that we have to save ourselves. Father, for every person in this room, my prayer is that you bring to mind a wound in their life that they are still hiding from you. Whether in their personal lives or in their church's life, bring to mind where they are hiding from you and that they would hear your still small voice say, I wanna meet you there in that place and not to condemn and not to judge, I want to kiss the left side of your face. I want to love you there. That is where you'll find me and nowhere else. Thank you that you're the scarred God, Jesus. Help us to preach you and you crucified. Because it is in your crucified and resurrected name we pray. Amen.